Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I'm your host, Coach Marty, and each episode I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore the path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. Today we sit down with Dr. Julia Barron, a licensed psychologist based in San Francisco with experience in both clinical work and consulting, specializing in women's health and wellness, substance use treatment, and pediatric and adolescent neuropsychological assessments. She currently works on the clinical team at Caraway, a digital healthcare company providing integrated mental, physical, and reproductive health for college women, and her private practice includes consulting and coaching for both individuals and teams, psychotherapy, and assessments. In this episode, we discuss how to cope with Sunday scaries, align your values, skills, and interests, and take a more holistic approach to your life and career. If you like this episode, please leave us a review and share it with a friend so we can help more people navigate their way to a better career. And enjoy this episode with Dr. Julia Barron. All right, Dr. Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to chat with you about these holistic approaches to our career and maybe even understanding a little bit more of what normal looks like when it comes to uh, expectations for what our career should be. But before we get into all that, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit, give us a little background on where you're coming from and the work you do and, uh, and how it relates to what we're talking about today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Great to chat with you today. Um, so yeah, I am a clinical psychologist by background and training, and I have had, you know, I know you consult with a lot of people about making career changes, and um, it took me a little time myself to kind of figure out my path and lead to where I am now. Um, and you know, so graduate school was quite long and um, I ended up in, you know, quite a few different clinical settings, getting a lot of good experience. And then on the other side of graduate school, kind of realized that being part of these more traditional, like large medical systems wasn't quite the right fit for me. So that's kind of a little bit of a theme in terms of thinking about like, holistic sense of career and what feels right and balanced. Um, and so I really um, have like, you know, done a lot of thinking and exploration over the past couple of years around what would be the right fit for me. And right now I'm doing quite a nice like combination of things in the theme of balance. Um, and I'm primarily with a company called Caraway, um, which is a startup. Um, and it's a, it's a digital healthcare company providing integrated health. So mental, physical, and reproductive health to college aged women. And, um, I came to that, um, kind of fortuitously as I was kind of thinking about, for myself, what would be the best intersection of my kind of skills, values, and interests um, from like my past experiences and, you know, what I really wanted to be focused on. And so um, I ended up 
you know, on the clinical team there, which I've just loved and would love to talk more about it. Um, and then I also have my private practice where I work with individuals as well as doing um, neuropsych assessments. So testing for ADHD, learning disorders, things like that. Love it. And so when it comes to finding that intersection of skills, values, and interests, I think that that's a really fun place for us to start here with the holistic approach, because you've done it yourself, you've helped other people do it. How do you, how do people, how could people approach figuring out what their skills, values, and interests are when it comes to finding some sort of fulfillment or meaning in their career? Because I do think it is a difficult thing. You know, everyone says, go live your values, you know, create boundaries around Mm -hmm. your values, go pursue your values. But then people sit there and they go, well, I don't know what are my values, right? Should I Google it? (laughs) What do I do? So how does someone come to, um, how does someone build some insights or what things could they do in order to figure out what their skills, values, and interests are? Yeah. And often there's overlap, right? Um, But I think when it comes to, if you were to start with values, um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on that. And of course it's, you know, very important. Um, I like to encourage people not to necessarily separate like personal slash professional values because, um, you know, they really kind of should be one in the same at the end of the day. And so, um, you know, even just starting, you know, you said, should I Google it? Like there are a lot of, um, resources online and just to do like a value sort, um, like a, literally an alphabetical list of values from A to Z and just to like initially go through it, see what jumps up out to you. And then from there, um, really think about, okay, what are the, let's narrow it down. Like sometimes they say like narrow it down to three to five or something like that. And then to think about like, okay, is what I'm doing at work even vaguely associated with these values? If not, like why not? And kind of go from there. Um, And so, yeah, I think it can seem a little bit daunting, but when then when you take a look at the list, it usually is like pretty clear. Like for me, for example, collaboration is one of my like most important values when it comes to work, personal. And I realized that um, what I was doing before at a, in a, at a hospital setting was all the only people I was interfacing with throughout my day were my patients, which has a lot of benefits and can be wonderful as well. But I realized I am really missing being around peers and like having conversations and collaborating with people um, in my field and, and in, you know, in a cross-functional manner as well. And, you know, a lot of my friends in other industries thought I was a little crazy, but I would always say, you know, I, I really want to be in meetings. Um, I really would like to, you know, see some other people throughout my day. So I thought about that a lot in kind of deciding what I might do next. That's awesome. Yeah, it's something that I definitely have come across, especially with the remote world that we live in, right? It all seems so great when you start working remote. You're like, oh my gosh, all this freedom and all this great stuff. And I think a lot of people are at the early stages of working remote because of the pandemic and everything. But then fast forward five, 10, 15 years, 
you start to realize, okay, wait a second, there's some value in being around people and not not just always being behind a screen in the same room forever, right? And so I love that you've totally. noticed that about yourself and built an environment that is conducive to that. Um, what are some of the things that happen either personally um, or professionally when our values and skills and interests are not aligned, what are some of the symptoms that people might look out for to see if this is something that maybe is off for them right now? Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say the number one thing would be dread. So um, sure. Like we all know, like sometimes we'll get what we, you know, is referred to as Sunday scaries or something like that. But um I realized kind of for the first time when I made this change in my career that I wasn't feeling that anymore. Um, so I think like dreading work or, um, you know, so that could be, you know, one kind of thought pattern symptom. And then another is like, when you think about burnout, right. That's a huge other topic, but that shows up in our bodies. Right. So, um, feeling stress both in the way you're thinking about things and in ways that it's showing up in your health like are you sacrificing your health for your job and that's definitely a symptom that requires some reevaluation to kind of find more balance yeah and I, I really am glad that you're bringing up the Sunday scaries. It's a big, big thing with career <laughs> therapy. This was one of the first things that we ever talked about when we did meetups pre-pandemic was the Sunday scaries. And I was even doing some, you know, Sunday night meetups in order for people to, That's to yeah, yeah, just, just, just call just to manage the Sunday scaries. And um, I think when people are experiencing the Sunday scaries, it's such an interesting thing because, you know, we get into these patterns with work, right? Where we work so hard for the five days that we're on. And then that, especially in probably the early years of a career, it's like work really hard during the week and then party on the weekend. It's like this just massive shift between like heavy focus, hard work and complete checkout. And I think as maybe your career grows and you start to find balance in different ways, we might, you know, realize that, uh, you know, there's there's maybe a little bit of things we can do on the weekend to keep ourselves uh, healthy, you know, holistically healthy, let's say. And one of the things, um, but one of the things that still kind of sticks around is that Sunday scaries, even, even if we are starting to put some of these pillars together. Uh, what do you think are some of the best ways to alleviate Sunday scaries if you're not in a job that is aligned yet? If, if you know, you still are going into work and things aren't quite quite aligned with your skill set, but you know, you, you still need to go in, you still need to do, you got to pay your bills. What are some of the things that we can do uh, on Sundays to uh, calm ourselves or get ourselves to a better place? Yeah. Um, I think just always coming, I always come back to the key pillars of health. So sleep, there are quite a few, but the main ones that come to mind for me are sleep, nutrition, exercise. So if instead of like, you know, running yourself into the ground in a different way on the weekend through, you know, Sunday night, if you can 
you know, build in some time to just like really unwind. Um, and self-care, I'm not just saying self-care, like take a bubble bath, but like really think about like what is going to feed me in a way that will help me be as energetic or like rejuvenated as possible to start this week, even if it's a week filled with things that I'm not 100% excited about doing. So um, getting enough sleep, like thinking about nutrition, like what you can eat to feel good, um, getting some movement in, it doesn't have to be like some crazy boot camp class, but going out for a walk, like it's different for everyone, but th those are maybe seem a little obvious, but I think we tend to ignore these really basic things that have a huge impact on our both mental and, and physical health. And if we can use Sunday um, or maybe even Saturday too, to do a little bit of thinking about what would really feel good and to create space between free time and work. Um, it could, I think it can make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, these are such huge things and they, it, it's so funny because it seems so simple, right? Oh, just get sleep, nutrition, exercise, no big deal. Right. But then when you actually try to do these things, life hits you, right? It's like, oh, wait a second. I, don't have enough time to make food or get to the gym or I'm up late for X, Y, Z reasons, or suddenly you just find yourself on social media till two in the morning or whatever the thing might be <laughs> um, in your practice. And with the people that you've worked with, what do you think, what do you think the causes are behind why we ignore these things? Um, why it's so hard for us to do these, you know, even if exercise is going for a walk, why is that so hard to get into our schedule? Um, what have you seen as like the main distractors or, or drivers of why people have a hard time calming themselves down enough to even put these things in their schedules? Yeah, I think, um, often, especially in like a high pressure work environment, like I'm thinking about the college women that I work with, um, um, the whole context of college is really, it's really challenging to find balance. And um, that's a whole other topic. But I think people forget that putting themselves first is important. And because it might seem selfish or something like that, like people have all sorts of, you know, associations with taking care of themselves. Um, but I think you know, something I'm always reminding people is that to, to kind of reframe it, like it's not a selfish thing. It's actually something that helps you show up to be a better friend, partner, student, employee, et cetera. Um, and so I think just the pressure cooker that especially like Gen Z is in right now um, in college or just after college and just the, you know, way that we all feel pressure to do, do, do. Um, I think our own habits to take care of ourselves often fall by the wayside. Those are the first things to be let go of because people feel like they have to stay on top of what's required of them, um, whether it's at work or school or um, friends, family. Yeah. How has this pressure to perform 
changed with the younger generations and and the college age people that you're working with right now? Have you seen shifts happening or is it has it been the same thing just in a different way? What are what are the problems that they're encountering and how are you seeing it show up in their lives? Yeah, I think um there's a huge pressure. I think that, you know, social media for this generation, like we hear about it a lot. I just, I think it is so huge. I think um, many of the young women I work with are like so self-aware and understand kind of what they quote unquote should be doing, but it's so hard to make changes because like everyone else is putting their lives on social media or on TikTok all day or what have you. So I think um, probably this hasn't changed, but just the the peer pressure or just like the idea that, you know, it's hard to do something different from what your friends are doing um, can be really hard um, for this group. And then not to mention just like the overall backdrop of not only being riddled with social media, I think is what is new for this generation, but not to mention social issues like the climate crisis. And just like, there's so much that young people are consumed with. And, um, you know, this is a really special generation at this like moment in history with just this moment in history, I think is really challenging for Gen Z, especially for women with the context of Roe being overturned, um, increasing issues with climate crisis, gun violence, being riddled with social media um, is is really impacting um, this generation. And so I think um, adding on like career and work pressures, I just think there's just so much to be overwhelmed by. Well, and I think that's such a key piece here. And this is maybe where we can dig into what's normal and what's not normal in life and in career. And as we try to put together a holistic approach to our lives and our career, how do we put one together or how do we approach our holistic, how do we come up with a holistic approach that is reasonable (laughs) at the end of the day, right? Because if you go online and you just type in like how to put together or how to build my career it is overwhelming what people are telling you to do. You have to build a brand. You have to become basically famous, like in order to do anything like, Mm -hmm. but we all know that there's dark sides to all of those things. And the more we're on social media, the more overwhelmed we can get, as you're saying here. And so um, when it comes to this feeling of overwhelm and these pressures, um, not only just personal pressures and professional pressures and then societal pressures. I feel like a lot of this stuff, it it's always existed in some way, shape or form, right? There's always been a keeping up with the Joneses of sorts, but it's like, mm-hmm. now you're keeping up with the Kardashians, right? And it's like, you're keeping up with literally everyone. It's not even just your small peer group. It's like, I think the craziest thing is how there's, you know, people in high school who have like, a hundred thousand followers online and how that can play into the social structure of their school. Right. I, at, at least when I was in high school, it was just who's popular in my school, but now it's like, who's famous and in my school. Right. And so um, we can see all these kind of crazy things happening. And so um, as we dig into this and the, the generational changes and the overwhelm and the pressure, um, where is it, is it TikTok? Is it 
are there any specific things that uh, you're seeing are having the biggest impact on people? And are you seeing any ways that younger folks are coping with that, right? Are they coming up with strategies to deal with social media? I know for the millennials, the, the, the group I'm in, you know, a lot of people I know have just, they're not even on social media anymore. I mean, that's partially just getting older, I would assume, but they're really trying to distance themselves and not, and do as little as possible on those platforms. And then TikTok, you know, to a millennial is like, it blows your mind up. <laughs> it's like way too much. <laughs> and, but like, if you grow up with TikTok, I, I, I can't imagine how much that would you know, change the way you feel. Because I think the thing that I, when I did download the app and take a look at it, the thing that hit me the hardest about it is that there's not even like one emotion that you can sit with for more than five seconds. You know, you see something that's funny. The next thing is sad. The next thing is, you know, makes you angry. The next thing makes you like overwhelmed. The next thing makes you scared. It's like all of a sudden you, you three hours later, you don't even have a sense of your own physical, mental, emotional self. And that has got to just be a draining experience for someone who's maybe doing it right before going to bed. Right. And so how are you seeing maybe social media specifically, how are people coping with this? How are they maybe managing their ability to use social media, but not have it overtake their life? Or are you seeing that they're not able to manage it? What's, what's been your observation? It's hard. Um, I do see, you know, I've even been kind of pleasantly surprised with some who say, oh yeah, I, I really try not to, you know, use social media too much. And I always ask, cause it's not necessarily about how much they're using, even though it can be kind of astonishing how many hours are spent on social media. Um, it's more like, is it negatively impacting your life? Like, which is like how we think about, you know, function versus dysfunction in general, right? Um, but I think the thing, you know, just what you said, like there's just too much access to everything. And, um, you know, I I don't know that there, that I've heard of like a great way to manage it other than trying to really limit use of it. Um, and then again, there are, positives as well. Like they say that as long as you're engaged and not just scrolling on and on without like being kind of more involved in whatever we can call that kind of community, um, it can have more, it can have some positive effects and there is a lot of access to information, but especially when it comes to health information, I really worry about that. Like Dr. TikTok seems to be even more um, dangerous, um, entity than Dr. Google these days, like people <laughs> are now like diagnosing themselves with various mental health disorders, um, via TikTok and all of that can be just like, you know, again, it's just access to way too much. But, um, I always ask, um, people about it and their use. And then sometimes we set goals, like, and especially to just be, able to at least reflect in the moment. Like, is this putting me in a bad mood? If so, like, how can I find ways to do something else and kind of intervene in the moment um, and put, put it down? But as we all know, it's quite addictive. So it's a huge problem. Um, I think like access to both good and bad on social media um, <clears throat> can really plague people. And so 
I work with a lot of people on like how to manage that, just like other forms of addiction, quite frankly. Well, and when it comes to addiction, um, you know, I was chatting with someone on a, on a recent podcast about um, how people use alcohol and drugs to numb feelings of discomfort, especially in after layoffs and things like that, uh, when experiencing overwhelming mm -hmm. emotions like grief. Um, are we seeing social media being used in that same way? Is it being used the same as people are using, uh, you know, substances? Um, or is it being used differently? How how are you sort of seeing it? Is it a numbing agent? Is it a curiosity agent? Is it a distraction? How are you sort of seeing the addictive side of it play out and show up in people's lives? Sure. Yeah, I think... Um, in some ways, it's um, a healthier distraction than substances, which is, you know, other than, you know, we could, we may be able to argue that there's a chemical um, addiction to social media, but it's far less harmful to the body than various substances. But I think that certainly people use social media to numb out and avoid other areas of their life. I think that if they continue to use it, using kind of um, substance use framework terms, continued use despite negative consequences is a symptom of, of addiction. And I think that we do see that quite a bit with social media. And what are some of those like negative... Knowing that... Oh, no. Yeah. What are some of those Sorry, negatives? What, what are they knowing and, and still continuing to use it in spite of? if there's a topic they're really interested in and they're like on there for hours and hours, maybe that's, that's different. Maybe the, the time spent is taking up time from other things they could be doing. But I think when it comes to comparison socially, I think that's where it becomes really toxic. Um, I see it, especially in, in young women where they're kind of looking at what their friends are doing and then kind of going down a rabbit hole of, no, like seeing this person like that picture. And I think that can be really hard to put down and clearly is negatively, negatively impacting mood, right? Um, feeling like feelings of rejection. Um, and then you mentioned about how not only are there just so many young people getting all of these followers, but then people compare themselves like, oh, someone my age is doing all of this and, you know, an influencer on this platform and I'm only in this place in my life. I think the comparison thing can be really hard and have a big negative impact on young people. Right. That comparing like where you are in exposure. life. Yeah, where you are in life compared to other people. And and I think this brings us back to that holistic nature of things, right? Connecting the mind and the body and trying to figure out what is normal in our careers and in our lives. What should our expectations be? This is a conversation that comes up very often in my group coaching where, you know, people are being told by the TikToks, by the Instagrams, by the, you know, even Google, uh, that they should be waking up with their head popping off the pillow, excited for the day every day. Otherwise, you know, you're not doing it right. And it really stresses people out and it makes them, it maybe even makes them quit good jobs or, you know, not pursue things that would make them happy because they think they should be doing something else. Right. Um, so how are you sort of seeing that brain body 
and expectations of what we should be feeling and what we should be thinking, you know, all the shoulds out there, right? What are some of the things that, mm-hmm. you know, you're seeing people get caught up in this, the cycles of thinking and, and maybe behaviors that are preventing them from finding a holistically centered place in, in what they're trying to do? Just the idea that we should be happy and energetic all the time is very problematic. Like a lot of times someone will list like five different significant stressors in their lives and then in their life and then say, yeah, and I'm, I was in a funk, you know, the other day and I'm not sure why. And I'll often, like, I really find myself reminding uh, patients so often that it's actually quite normal to feel a little bit down given the context of all these things you've mentioned, even one of these things would be overwhelming for people. So when you think about normal, normal is actually experiencing a whole range of human emotions, um, maybe even within the course of a day, like that is actually normal. And so I think, again, it's sort of this pressure to feel good and be happy and all of that, that um, people think they're not normal if they're having a down day and they think that that could mean something's wrong with them, but actually that's pretty normal as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it's funny because we, you know, you get the Sunday scaries, you know, there's even a phrase for it, but you still kind of feel like, (laughs) why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't feel this way. Right. No one else feels this way, but obviously people do. Otherwise we wouldn't have a word for it. Right. Um, So Mm -hmm. when, when someone is in that mode of thinking they're the only one who isn't feeling, who's feeling a certain way and they're feeling down about it. um, What would you, what, what have you sort of seen as the commonalities between how people think about their emotions, whether it's positive or negative, how, how can we maybe retrain our brains or let's say reframe the story so that it's serving us rather than dragging us deeper down the pit? What are some of the ways that we can shift our thinking towards the positive? Yeah. So, so reframing. So um, part of what you're referring to, we could call like a cognitive distortion, specifically emotional reasoning. So I, I'm feeling, I feel like a bad friend, therefore I am a bad friend. So I think that can be really common. Like if you're feeling a certain way, the tendency is to over identify with the feeling or over identify even with the thought. And then it, you know, it has a kind of a trickle down effect. Um, So to start to be aware of the cognitive distortions that like, I I often ask people to look at sort of a list of things like either, let's say emotional reasoning, catastrophizing, um, you know, assuming the worst out of different scenarios. Um, And then start to notice in the moment when it's happening and then learn to reframe it. So to be, you know, this is really hard work, (laughs) but to eventually be able to catch these things, recognize them as something that is actually more of a negative thought pattern than anything else that's reflected in reality. And to be able to offer another 
idea about what's going on. Can we run through a few of those? Cause I, you're throwing out some really awesome, like, um, phrases here that I, I know in the psych, in the world of psychology and coaching, we're very familiar with, but I think a lot of people listening to the show might, yeah. they might not know what emotional reasoning is or catastrophizing. What are maybe two or three yeah. of these things that we could break down a little bit further? So let's say someone is catastrophizing. What does that look like mm -hmm. and how can they reframe it in the moment? Yeah. So catastrophizing is like seeing the worst possible outcomes in a situation. So, um, you know, they go on a date and don't hear back right away. And this is a common thing that comes up with young people. Um, the thought might be, oh, they hate me. They never want to see me again. That, that would be catastrophizing in that scenario. Um, but another way to look at it or reframe it could be maybe they just need a little time to get back to me actually the date was pretty good like you know I'll maybe I'll hear from them later or maybe I could reach out like something like that would be a good way to reframe um a kind of spiraling or catastrophizing and then when it comes to emotional reasoning, what, what would you, how, how could we take a look at that? Yeah. So, um, so it's kind of like leading with the feeling and, and making it true, like reasoning with, so I'm, I feel, I'm feeling like a bad friend right now because maybe, maybe in reality, the person is very overwhelmed by things in their own life and they haven't been able to reach out to friends as much recently. I feel mm -hmm. like a, a bad friend can quickly translate into, I am a bad friend, but the reframe is kind of what I just went over. Like, actually there's quite a bit of evidence that I've been a great friend in the past. And right now I'm feeling overwhelmed by X, Y, and Z. And so right now I'm not, um, being the best friend that I can be, but that this is a moment in time. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program, which was built to give you the personalized support you need to advance in your career without fear and turn work-related anxiety into professional accomplishments. When you enroll in the Unstuck Coaching Program's monthly membership, you get immediate access to all of the coaching resources you need to crush it in your job search. This includes two one-on-one -on -one calls with Coach Marty every month, weekly job search support group sessions with the Unstuck community, access to the Unstuck curriculum, which guides you through every aspect of your job search from strategy through negotiations, and an invite to the Career Therapy Slack channel where you can chat with Coach Marty whenever job search questions come up. Want to see if the Unstuck Coaching Program is right for you? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free consultation with me in order to find out. I really appreciate you bringing these down because it these things come up not only in you know dating and personal life and friendships, but also in our work, right? So we go to work and we go, oh my gosh, I didn't put in 110% today. I'm therefore a bad employee when really it's the mm -hmm. average that we should be looking at, right? Or you get a little bit of feedback from a boss saying, hey, you didn't do this thing quite right. Mm -hmm. So you catastrophize that into, oh my God, everyone hates me. I'm going to lose this job and never be promoted, right? And I see this stuff all the time, especially in the job search. 
when someone is going like, um, oh my gosh, in that interview, they asked a question and I didn't answer it perfectly. So I'm never going to get a job. It's like, okay, wait a second. There are thousands and thousands of jobs out there. There's no way that you're never going to get any job, right? That you're going to get something. Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, there, there is this sort of interesting push and pull in the mental health space between knowing our emotions and then responding appropriately to our emotions. And I think this is maybe a tough part for people. And it's something that I really want to dig into more in, in, in the episodes here, which is, you know, there's a lot of mental health information out there, probably more than there's ever been in all of history, right? We know way more about our emotions and we talk about it way more than we ever have. And that allows people to tap in to these what could be very overwhelming emotions that are typically <laughs> buried a little bit so we can float above them and get our job done, right? But then we start opening that box and the emotions start to come out and uh, maybe the catastrophizing comes out or different things like that. But then we have to respond to the emotions in an appropriate way, right? And so how can someone who is maybe for the first time opening these boxes and starting to get overwhelmed, how can they um, prepare themselves so that they don't flip from completely cut off from their emotions to completely driven by their emotions and find that nice middle ground where they understand what they're going through, but they're also responding correctly. What are some strategies that they can take or what are ways that they can prepare themselves for that experience? Yeah. And just even your use of the word respond is kind of key here. So especially those of us who aren't used to letting emotions surface, the tendency is to react instead of respond. So even that is a first step. Um, and this, this is key when people have challenges with anger, um, for example. Um, but actually focusing on it being about responding and, and kind of Pot, you know, creating space in between the feeling and the response rather than an immediate reaction is a really good, like kind of first way to, th to think about this. What are some ways we can create that space? How have you guided people through that process? Yeah. So I think, um, mindfulness practices are key. And so everyone knows, yes, meditation is good for you. Maybe they're sick of hearing it. It's true. Meditation is very good for you. Um, but there are other ways to bring in mindfulness. So some people actually don't find that meditation is, you know, possible for them, especially if you're in a really, um, like heightened state of arousal meditation, uh, meditation is not as good for you. Like if you're really angry, for instance. Um, so like mindful walking or, you know, even, or listening to something that's guided, if it's a meditation can be like a really good way rather than just like lying there with your thoughts saying like, am I meditating? Am I doing this right? Um, but yeah, any, any mindfulness practice, I, I'm a huge, uh, fan of journaling. I think that like, and not in your phone, but pen to paper journaling is a really good, more active mindfulness activity that um, can really, really help with people's um, like kind of initial processing of, of emotions and building that awareness that you're talking about. Why do you think pen to paper is better than digital? What is it about that? 
Yeah. There's something about, um, just the free form handwriting that gets rid of all digital distractions. First of all, I think, um, that is just really powerful and helps unlock something in our unconscious. I can't explain <laughs> the, the brain mechanisms involved. Um, but I just know it really works. And when people do start incorporating these mindfulness practices, um, cause it is such an interesting thing, right? We have, we have all this information out there and, you know, the solution is to make space between you and the information, then make space between you and your emotions, and then be able to, you know, navigate the next steps in an appropriate way. Um, I think this maybe brings us back to some of your work, uh, with, you know, neuropsych and assessments and helping people understand how their brain works as well. Cause let's say someone sits down, they're like, okay, I want a journal, but then they're constantly distracted because they might have ADHD or, um, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do this, but then they find out they have high levels of anxiety or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, then they go back to the, the social media and all the, you know, Dr. TikToks, the doc talks, uh, tell them, you know, put a potato on your foot or something to feel better. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't even know some weird stuff out there. Yeah. Um, so what are some things that you've seen in, in how you assess people in order to help them figure out, um, which, what, what sort of, uh, responses might be best for them in order to manage their own personal, um, situation because we're all different right journaling might be easier for one mm -hmm. person than another meditation might be easier for one person than another what are the differences that you see through your assessments in how maybe there's some categories that we can like place people into if you're this kind of person maybe these things are more helpful do you have any sort of insights into um, trends that you've seen from the assessments that you've given and the way people in those different um, groups have responded to the stresses of of finding balance in their life? So one thing that comes to mind that comes out of a, a neuropsych assessment is understanding um, whether you're more, um, your strengths are more in kind of verbal versus verbal or auditory versus visual learning and or memory. Um, so that, that for that piece, that can be really key to understand like do I need to see something in front of me or do I need to hear it or speak about it um, in order to process it better? Um, so when it comes to what we're talking about now, like journaling might be better for someone that's more visually inclined because they're like kind of seeing it in front of them or, you know, writing something out um, or, and then maybe like a guided meditation um, might be easier to pay attention to for someone with strengths in the more auditory or verbal area. Most people have, you know, a relatively balanced split of the two. Um, you know, it really depends. But um, when it comes to being distracted and journaling, you know, I would say just write about that, like anything that comes to mind, just write it down, you know, there's no kind of right way to do it. Yeah. I know when I started journaling, I would, uh, I was doing something called 750 words and I would journal in this, uh, thing and your goal was to hit 750 words. And I, 
the first month or two, I was just like, and I have nothing to say, just trying to hit 750 right. words. <laughs> um, so I'd run out after like two paragraphs and now I'm like 10,000 words and I'm still typing because uh, there's so many mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, but <laughs> when it comes to, we've talked a lot about the mental side of things and and then how to maybe use journaling and different things to to manage some of that. But bringing it back to the more holistic view, what are some of the physical things? Mm -hmm. uh, you've talked about you know, diet or nutrition and exercise. Um, what are maybe some of the basics that people can start implementing, some of the easiest things that they could maybe do to get the ball rolling? I think sometimes it's tough because we, again, go to DocTalk and you find that you know, you, if you're, you maybe get yelled at by some fitness instructor who's like, if you're not waking up at 4am every morning, you know, mm. it's like, okay, wait a second. <laughs> you can't go from zero to a hundred, right? You need to maybe take some baby steps. So what are some baby steps that people could take when it comes to their uh, fitness and their nutrition in order to start getting those pieces in line with their other goals? We need to be really honest with ourselves about what goals are achievable. So I'm a fan of recommending smart goals. Um, so specific, measurable, achievable. Um, what's the R? Results. Specific, measurable, attainable, attainable. relevant, and time relevant. <laughs> there it is. We achievable, attainable are synonyms. Um, so, uh, I encourage people to set like as small a goal as possible to start out. Like if someone says, instead of, um, instead of being on social media before bed, I want to read. I'm like, okay, great. How often, when do you, how often do you want to do that for how many minutes? And they're like mm, five nights a week for an hour. And I will like encourage them to start with like one day a week for 15 minutes. And if mm -hmm. you exceed the goal, great. If you don't, then also that's fine because it's okay to start really small and it may seem silly, but I think we set ourselves up for failure all the time with these goals. And, you know, it's the beginning of the year, the whole idea of like new year's resolutions that, you know, people tend to just get frustrated by. Um, so I think it's like always a good time to, you know, set a small goal and see how it goes. And then just reassess if it's not working to do the reading you want to do before bed is the morning a better time for you i don't know try it out um so just i think being like honest and also flexible rather than like i must meet this really like lofty goal and it has to be in this rigid way of doing things i think Overall, what I'm saying is having more self-compassion when it comes to these things that we want for ourselves. I love that. And because that self-compassion piece is so big because, you know, if we start small, we're flexible, we're testing things and we're leaning into our strengths, you know, over time, that stuff will compound. And I think, again, this goes back to the social media stuff and everything. It's like, maybe you want to do yoga and you're like, all right, I'm getting into yoga, but then you go and follow a bunch of yoga accounts. Well, your, you know, 20 minute yoga session where you can barely touch your toes is going to look pretty inferior to the person that's on YouTube. It's probably been doing yoga since they were a child and they like can put their, you know, whole leg around their head. I don't know what they can do. Right. And so <laughs> you, you find these 
this this self-compassion becomes such a core thing. And it's also something that's so missing in a lot of the people that I work with, right? The imposter syndrome is really high. The self-criticism mm-hmm. is really high. The um, uh, perfectionism is like through the roof. And so maybe as we get towards the end of the conversation here, we can maybe leave people with some ideas of how to cultivate that self-compassion a little bit more. You know, we have journaling practices, we have all these different things, but uh, have you ever worked with someone who was really hard on themselves? And, you know, what were some of the things that they did to build that self-compassion muscle and that skill in their life? Yeah, I think um, many people, most people are really hard on themselves and could use a little more self-compassion. I think simply introducing that as an option can be really powerful for people, like kind of going back to this um, idea we were talking about earlier that it's selfish to take care of yourself or like the, you know, the words or the phrase self-care can be a little bit cliche, but to really think about what best serves me to then be better in all areas of my life and like to think about um, how that then spreads out to being, you know, a better friend, partner, et cetera. So um, I think, you know, catching the negative self-talk and, you know, really working on reframing it, taking some time for that engaging in some kind of mindfulness practice, whatever that is, you know, I think um, even just various creative activities just for the sake of being creative um, is, you know, that can be really powerful. People feel productive when they do things creatively and to not do it for being productive, but just for the sake of engaging in something creative is, is huge. And the word creative can mean all sorts of things. It doesn't have to just be artistic, but anything um, can really be creative. When it comes to figuring this all out and having that self-compassion, I think where people get tripped up a little bit is that they, and this this is going back to something you mentioned earlier, we almost turn our thoughts, our thoughts naturally form our identity, right? Our stories, our identity is made up of our stories and our thoughts. And so one of the things that you had mentioned was that, you know, we don't need to let our thoughts or we can let our thoughts just be thoughts. And maybe we can end the podcast here on the idea, on some of the ideas from cognitive behavioral therapy of if we have built an identity for ourselves that is not serving us, um, whether it was conscious or subconscious or whatever it might be, uh, the process of understanding that identity and then trying to reframe it, change it, deconstruct it can be pretty painful for people or at least overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So what are some um, concepts or strategies that you might recommend to someone, uh, maybe some cognitive behavioral therapy techniques uh, that you might recommend to help people just take a step back again, maybe put some space between themselves and the identity that they've constructed the same way we might with our emotions. What are some of the things that we can do? Because identity is so big in our career. It really does. um, We form it, you know, very diligently while trying to get a job and then we get paid to be that thing. So it's a very concrete thing, but it, 
you know, you lose your job and your whole identity can like go up in a puff of smoke, right? So what are some of the things that we can do to be maybe even preventative in our approach to a holistic life so that we're not um, having to be so reactive? What are things that we can do to build that space, protect ourselves, prepare ourselves, or, or just, you know, be more aware as we move forward? I think coming back to the idea of values um, is important here with identity because that's where the professional and personal hopefully overlap. So if you're thinking about how are my values like reflected in the work I'm doing, uh, both professionally and personally, that can be a really good kind of anchor thinking about identity. And if the current job you're in is misaligned, that's okay. Um, as long as you're thinking about what are even really small ways I can get a little more aligned with my values. And if something feels misaligned, it's usually because it's not in line with what you value, what, and what you're interested in, what you're good at, you know, and skills can be honed over time, but also thinking about what kind of comes naturally or what you would do if there, you know, money weren't an issue. And it doesn't have to be like leading to your dream career the second, but just thinking of little ways, like going back to the smart goals, like just these little tweaks you can make throughout your day, um, including starting with addressing your health. So mind and body, um, whether it's coming back to these key pillars of health or working with a therapist or coach um, in a preventive way um, rather than waiting until you're sick. Like that's really, really key um, to really um, just have more agency over your health and well-being and end up as a more balanced person. Right. And I, and I really appreciate you breaking it down to those three different areas of your nutrition, your fitness or your health and your, you know, um, and building these, these goals, these smaller goals around it, as we try to bring all those pieces together, the sleep, the nutrition and the exercise, because it is amazing how, uh, so much of what we try to do when things aren't going right, is just think ourselves through it or work ourselves through it. And mm -hmm. what you've put out here are some alternatives that almost seem harder <laughs> for some reason, even though it, it really should, you know, it's just like put the right foods in your mouth. Right. But, um, you know, it, it, it is, uh, it's quite amazing how much stress gets cleared up if you get these three pieces, right. Whereas what I tend to find is, you know, you could have all the knowledge in the world. It doesn't necessarily calm your mind. It actually might even make it busier. So I appreciate you breaking mm -hmm. it down in all these different ways. Um, if someone wants to follow your work and see more of what you're doing, where can they find you on the interwebs? Oh, sure. Um, well, I do have a website, uh, drjuliabaron.com and not too much social media. Um, I am on LinkedIn. And then um, to learn more about Caraway, it's caraway.health. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really wonderful conversation. And uh, I really hope people will take these insights and apply them to their work. Thank you so much.
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.